Welcome to Seekonk Speedway's 75 Seasons of Speed podcast. This is a walk back in time with a few of our favorites celebrating the history of racing at Seekonk Speedway. Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of 75 Years of Speed, a walk back through the history of the action track of the East, a podcast with Doug Sheehan, myself, and Mr. Kevin Boucher. And today... We are joined by none other than seven-time champion Jerry DeGasperi Jr. Jerry, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I want to thank you for Jerry, coming on. And Kevin, lead the way. Jerry, you've had a pretty good career at Seacock. Um, tell us all, how it all started, when you first started coming and when you got involved in it and how things progressed from there. Uh, I started going as a kid with my father, like pretty much everybody will probably tell you. And then... uh. You know, my parents always took me. My mother worked for um, San Angelo Buick back in the day. So I used to go there and watch, you know, Eddie and Johnny San Angelo. And as a kid, I just grew up sitting in turn four watching races. What made you decide that, uh, what was the deciding factor for you to get behind the wheel? I don't know. We just, we used to go every week and then, you know, we started sniffing around and we just decided to go out and buy a car because we had, no freaking idea what we were in for, obviously. I can remember you showing up at that yellow Chevelle uh, yep. back when you first started out. Um, how how difficult was it learning the ropes, and did you have anybody to go to to, to learn the steps? This is the perfect example of getting in way over your head. We bought that car for $300 because we thought it was already a race car. What, what could it need? And phew, man, the uh, the learning lessons are steep. Let me tell you. Do you remember the first time you you got out onto the track and got ready for a race? I do. I remember the first time. I remember the first spin out. I remember my first DAV was the first time I started on a pole. Took off in a heat race, got to the stop finish line, and spun out all by myself. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember all of it. Now, you, it was a couple of years before you built a new car, wasn't it? Yeah, and um, so we had the Chevelle in, like, 93 or so, and then we built a brand-new Camaro, me and Scott Serendinsky did, and that's when we got our first win. You know, we started running in the top five. We got a win, top ten in points, and then my last year in the street is, was 98, and we actually finished second to get a body bed caught in points. Tell us about the, the the decision to move up into the, uh, well, back then, I think it was the Chargers of the Sportsman Division. Yeah, it was the Sportsman's, yep, absolutely correct. Um, we had talked to Jimmy Kuhn about it, and he had hooked us up with Scully. So Big Tommy had a car that, I don't know, I'm sure you remember of all people, but um, Steve Channing drove it. It was his other late model, and then put the 23 on it, and Channing drove it as a pro stock in certain races. So mm -hmm. Tommy had that car and it was sitting in his garage. So we went up there, took a look at it. And, you know, next thing I knew, we came home with that car. How, how, when you first got behind the wheel of that car out on the track, how different was it? Oh, it's, it was like night and day for me. I mean, you're going from the street stock with a, you know, a good little motor and a small tire to back then was, you know, the new late model stuff with the suspension and then the eight inch tires and 
we all had big motors back then. That's when I had my precision motor from Randy. So that was like night and day difference. Um, the learning curve was, it was steep, but it, after a few weeks, it just became so much easier to drive than a street stock as, as weird as that might sound. Well, if I remember correctly, when you made the jump, you actually took to it pretty well and you, you found yourself running competitively right from the get go. We did. We, um, we finished like seventh in points that year. We won a race. Uh, Peter Fernandes won rookie of the year. I do remember that cause he had two wins. Um, but I mean, we won, we ran in the top five, we went to Lee with it. We ran good up there. So it was fun. And, and back then I had Glenn Young to lean on. So, um, Glenn used to give me a lot of help from the driving point of view. And back then his crew chief, which was Mark Sokowitz, he helped us out a ton and I had Jimmy Kuhn helping me. So, you know, it's, it's all about who you surround yourself with. Now over your career, you've been able to surround yourself with a lot of good people. Yeah, that's an understatement. I let me tell you, we have been super, super fortunate. I mean, obviously, the best person I've been able to surround myself with has been my father for all these years because he's the one I jumped on when I he realized I was in way over my head. So, you know, before we had the good sponsors and before the prices got you know through the roof, the old man was footing the bills for me. Uh, it, you know, I've known you for a long time, even before you got into racing, Jerry, but I, something about the racing, is, I think, has brought you and your father a lot closer. You know, we, we've always been close. You know, he's my best friend. You know, there's no doubt about it. I mean, he's he's the guy to me. He's the man. You know what I'm saying? Everybody's got the hero. That guy's my hero. But the racing, you know, the car was always at his shop. So I'd see him every day. We'd work on a car. You know, we'd go to the car shows. We'd go to all the fundraisers together. For years, it was just me and him going to the racetrack, which reminds me of like Rick Martin and his father. You know, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I remember way back when, Jimmy Kuhn and his father, Rick Martin and Joe Martin. You know, you see things like that, and it's the good father-son relationships that, you know, that's why I always tell everybody how C-Conks are family-oriented place. Look at you and your father back in the day. Yep, you're absolutely right. Racing, when you first started, when you first moved up into the sportsman division, which is now the late model, um, up until now, it's really changed. And not just the money part of it. Of course, I mean, it, the price has increased with a lot of different things, but the racing itself has changed a lot. Tell us a little bit about what you've seen over the past 25 years in that division. When, when I first started, we would send 15 cars a week home, you know, 12, 15 cars a week. We raced against, it seemed like the best field you could put together. And then as time went on, the fields weaned down. And at one point we were racing with as many cars as we used to send home. And that just wasn't nearly as fun. I mean, racing against 12, 13 cars. I remember we were running they used to have two or three heats depending on the car counts they'd have a concy and then they were sending cars home and i mean good cars and nowadays you still have great competition and you have great teams and great drivers but there's not as many for whatever reason and i and i believe myself that it's just priced itself out it's priced so many people out of the game whether it's 
the street stocks, the late models, the pro stocks. It's just, it's not a, it's not a sport where you can, well, some do it, but not as many anymore where you can build your own stuff for everything. And you're not going to go to the junkyard. You're not going to go to Napa. You know, that, that stuff's just non-existent for the upper divisions anymore. The talent, look, take a, think about the racing itself. It seems the last few years, uh, the competition level has actually come back to what we remember 15, 20 years ago. It's had flow with the division and with racing in general all around New England. But the talent, or the, I shouldn't say the talent, the competition level now is almost at that same stage as it was 15, 20 years ago. It does. It's, you know, the competition is as good as it was then. There might not be as many people. Say back then there was 15 that can win on any given night. And now let's say there's eight or 10. But the same guys are going to be there every week. And, um, you know, give or take someone having a bad week. And you're going to still end up with the best guys racing to the front every week. But there's still a better chance of, say, eight different people winning than a few years ago when two or three people were going to win. So I definitely believe that the talent level is there, and the racing is just awesome. Anybody goes on YouTube or watches the old videos, the races are too wide, uh, just stacked up racing for the front up at the lead pack, and the racing itself has been awesome, I thought. Now, was it about 12 years ago they came around and started with the crate engines? And at first you were a big opponent of that. You didn't want to hear it. And how did all of a sudden you turned around and became a big proponent for it, that you liked the idea of it? Um, what was the game changer on that for you? I, I, I vaguely remember the story you told me on that. I was against it. Um because I didn't like everybody having to go to one engine builder at the time, regardless if it's Nat or whoever it was. I just thought that we should have our choice. You know, we used Randy from precision. So we were actually probably the last front runner to go to a crate motor. And I had to go because the first year I got a weight penalty and I'm not sure if we won a championship or whatever. Well, then they added weight to us again. And then the next year they were going to do it again, but eventually it got to too much. We we're going to end up carrying like 75 pounds over everybody else. So then we eventually had to go to the crate motor program and Lord, you know, we won the first night out with it, open a night with the crate motor. First night with it, we went out and won. Since now some of the changes they've made in that division with the tires, the tire rule, the engine rule, do you think it's really helped the sport? and more importantly, help the late model division? I do. I think that the crate motor program is an awesome program as long as, it, as long as it is monitored properly. You know, like up north, they got a problem with a bunch of people playing with seals and tags. But the thing with the crate motor is you can go get your crate motor and you can run it for a whole season. And as long as you don't hurt it, the next season, put valve springs in it, you know, and you'll be good to go again. When we ran the conventional motors, we were rebuilding them every year, $4,000, $5,000, $6,000 every year. So whether you'd run 12 races 
or 18 races, you're getting your stuff rebuilt and you're still spending four or $5,000. The crate motors say you start with nothing. You're going to spend whatever it is, $8,000 for everything. And now you're good for a couple of years with it. So the cost of that, the cost efficiency of that was huge. And it also equaled out the playing field and it put it more back in the driver's hands because say I had a $15,000 motor back then and the guy next to me built his in his garage for $2,500. I'm not saying that's not going to be as competitive, but the money thing of who's going to have better parts, who's going to make more power with the crate motor. Now everybody's got the same thing. Looking back over your career, you've had, you've had a lot of, you've raced against a lot of great competitors in the late model division. Who do you think was your toughest competitor to race against? Oh, that's easy. Ryan Vaness. How so? Ryan made me step my game up every week. He made me go back to the garage and work harder on that car every week. Him and Mike would work on their game to step it up, and that would force us to step up our game. And it just made it made us better. The competition, just trying to compete with them and beat them, it made us better. It made us work harder. It made us hungrier. Now, over an 11-year period from 2003 to 2013, you won seven championships over that course. You were almost, I would say you were dominant through that period of time. Um, the last few years, you've struggled to keep up that pace. You've still been in the championship hunt. You still had your wins, but there's been a difference in your performance over the season. Um, in my, and I'm talking about from my personal view, what has been the difference from then, then till now? You're right. We definitely fell off. I mean, um, you know, the last championship was in 13, and I thought this year we were right back to where we needed to be. But the few years in between, we got behind. Um, we got really stagnant. I think we – I don't know. I don't want to say we we were just content with what we had, but we didn't stay up with the times like everybody else did. And, you know, we didn't run as good. When we had them championship years, we never wrecked. We never broke. Then in them years, now we're crashing. Now we're having mechanical failures. Now we're just not running good. Um, you know, I think the car got, the car or the components on the car got outdated. And we kind of became complacent with that and didn't keep up with that. So, you know, a bunch of little things that all added up to a big thing, which was performance. Last couple of years, you've, seem to step up your game again. Um, do you still have that hunger to go after the eighth championship? Oh, I, absolutely. Um, any front runner will tell you that they go to the racetrack to win races and win championships. And obviously it's still there. I thought we were really good last year. Um, you know, the top four of us into the final night were still mathematically alive, uh, which was Tommy Adams, Ryan, Lineham, that is, Vinny and myself. Um, so I thought, you know, take away one bad night. We had one accident after we had won earlier in the year, and we missed a little bit there, and then we had a mechanical failure. So a couple of little odds and ends, I think you're right there with them, guys. 
What kind of changes, or if any, have you made to your program going into this year? I know we're on hold right now, but um, have you made any changes to your program? We did. We um we had bought that new car from Jeff Hill last year, um, and I think that showed a huge difference in our our ability and our performance. I guess is what I want to say. Last year, um, and this year, anything that we didn't upgrade. Or make better last year, we redid this year, and now we're just you know like you said on hold, just kind of kind of waiting. The things just sitting with a car cover on it. Your personality has made you a lot of friends in the in the racing and in life over the years, but it's also had its uh, downfalls as well. One in particular that I'm thinking of, and you and I spoke about this briefly <laughs> beforehand, was. Uh, the rivalry with Glenn Lawton over the over a couple of year period. Uh, what uh, what happened there, and and what led to the the big fallout? It was weird. Glenn and I, you know, the whole thing sucks. If you want to be honest, Glenn and I were really good friends, and you know, we raced for championships. We pitted next to each other for years. Um, we saw each other all the time. We hung out a little bit. Um. And the worst part is it didn't even stop between Glenn and myself. It started between the crew guys um, in the pits and it became an altercation in the pits. And then next thing you know, all the crew guys are involved. So now every week you're still pitting next to each other and there's the animosity. So the chief shots are flying. The, the dislike is building up between everybody. And unfortunately, before all this went down, we had already agreed to a match race um, on a thrill show night. And I came up with the idea to donate the winnings to the charity of our choice. So we had already agreed to that before the fallout. So even with the fallout, we had to fulfill our agreement. And I'll let you take it from there if you want. Well, I remember the, there was an on-track altercation and you ended up just pulling off for whatever reason. Um, now, would you say that was probably your biggest rivalry in, in your career? Um, yeah, I guess, you know, we've had, every championship's had somebody different that, you know, we've raced against, and I don't, not everyone is a rivalry. Some are just, I guess we'll call it competition. Like the first one we competed against Billy Goodrow. Um, and then the next ones you had Lawton and Mikey Brightman. And then you had Ryan and then we had Bobby Pellin. And then you had Jeremy in there, Jeremy in there too. And you still get along with everybody now and you still talk to everybody. Yeah, but unfortunately, Things never got resolved from Glenn and myself, so I guess you call that rivalry a hatred or whatever you want to look at it as. In the downfall to it is to this day, the thing I resent or regret the most is the on track incident. Um it didn't really affect Glenn. Unfortunately, it affected Kevin and Bonnie who owned his car. And I feel bad about that because they're super, super good people. And that's the part I've always regretted. Looking back with everything you've accomplished, what's the highlight so far? 
the first championship probably was the coolest because I remember pulling in after the interview and back then in victory lane, you used to get the crown and the hat and I come up the tunnel and they were all wearing championship shirts and I got to see my father standing there with the shirt on. That was the coolest. And then the next one would be the first championship that my daughter Bryce was at the track for. It was pretty cool. There's one race you always tried to win and you, you, it was, it was almost like Dale or not in the Daytona 500. Something would happen yep. every single year. And then all of a sudden, you finally got that DAV win. Um, probably just about the happiest I've seen you at the track. Yeah, it took us 20, 20 or 21 tries, or some, 19 or 20 tries. It was crazy, like or not. But the funny thing is, we had led the race we had never won. We had led every lap out of the 50 more than once, except for lap 50. We had led on 49. We had led a couple times on 48. And then to finally break through and get it. And then to get it again, like two years later, we went that all that time without being able to get it. And then we got two of them in three years. It was crazy. Now, the one question that a lot of people have asked, and I know I've, you and I have talked about this in the past, um, with all your success in the late models, why did you never take that step into the post stocks? I don't know. There's, there's really no answer. I mean, the late models to me were always, first of all, they're, they're, it's just an awesome division. It's fun to drive. At the time, even before it was ACT, you could go anywhere with a late model. You could go to Thompson. Even back then, you could have went to Waterford. Staff had got rid of them, so you couldn't go there. We could go to Lee. And now that they're ACT, you can go anywhere with them. Um, pro stocks, you're a, a Seekonk, you go to Thompson or Lee when they had them. But the late models to me was were the best competition. It was where our budget allowed us to race and race competitively. Because people say, well, the purses aren't that different. Yeah, it is if you start from scratch and you're going to go buy a brand new car. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a big chunk to swallow. And, you know, everybody says, oh, well, the, the payouts aren't that different, this and that. If you add it all up little by little, yeah, it's, a, it's enough to make a difference. But what do I do with all the stuff that I've accumulated over the years for all the late model stuff? We, we have two complete late models sitting in the garage. Then what do you do with, you know, your crate motors, your air ends that are different? all that other stuff, then you still got to go buy whatever you need for the pro stock. So it just, it was never cost efficient for us. No, that makes perfect sense. And that's a, the same answer that you gave me. I think the last time I asked you that question, I think it was about five or six years ago. Yeah. It's just now like it's the late models were always, it was always a comfortable, um, bill for us to afford. You know, you know where you're at with your tires, the crate, motor, the crate motor program made it more affordable. You know, the tire program, now that we're on a tire program, because at one point in the late models, we didn't have a tire program. So you're firing four on every week to keep up with everybody else. So, you know, the pro stocks are doing that for the longest time also. So everything has just made it as cost affordable as we could be. Now, probably over the past 10, 12 years, a lot of the guys that have worked with you on the car have gone, in, gone on to their own racing careers. Um, 
driving either a pure stock or, or starting there and moving their way up and now the legends. How much input do you have to that or is that they, they just get drawn into it and grab onto it to the point where they need to get behind the wheel as well? Well, I mean, we go back to Bobby Langtang when he was with us. He wanted to, you know, he always wanted to race, so he had the street stock and he ended up, we ended up buying my old car back that he ran, you know, so that was pretty cool and he ran that for a while and then, you know, everybody knows Skeet has been with me for years and he wanted to race and it works out perfect with the Friday night deal for him so I can help him on Fridays. He can help me on Saturdays. Um, so, you know, to me, the legend cars are just an awesome division that's really exploded at Seekonk. Um, the car count is just incredibly amount of cars they get. And those, and the thing with those is you can just run them anywhere. So, you know, with Skeeter's car, we've gone to Waterford. We've gone to Star. You know, we've traveled north. We got the Seekonk, and Seekonk has the big shows. So I think any kid that works on somebody else's race car eventually wants to try driving for themselves. Do you take a lot of pride in the success that you guys have had behind the wheel? With Skeeter? Oh, with him, with Bob, with... You know, John Robito worked with you for a little bit. and it's been John, a few John, yeah, John, John had a really great career. And so did Bill Schwannad, who was still, yep. you know, actively involved. Um, I do. You know, those guys, they all work hard. That's the biggest thing is, you know, the, the races are one in the shop. Do the work in the shop and, you know, the proof comes out at the racetrack. And obviously the success with Brendan is what I'm most proud of because I see how hard that kid works. And not just on his stuff, but on my stuff too. That kid is at the shop working and, and playing with race cars non-stop. And he's devoted yeah. to whether it's mine or his, or, you know, he still helps Rick Gentis at Thompson and he just likes racing. I feel a lot of passion in him. There's a ton of it. For a young yeah. kid, Sure, be... Go ahead, I'm sorry. But once again, that's also a family-oriented deal. Deal back to Seekonk being a family-oriented track. His deal is with his father and his grandfather and his grandmother. His brother helps, I help. Once again, it comes back to that family-oriented condition that I talked about at the beginning of the show. Short of the Glenn Lawton incident, do you have any regrets or any anything you look at that um, I wish that didn't happen, whether it was leading a race and something happening or an incident on the track? There's lots of incidents you wish that. I remember leading 46 laps in the DAV in the ignition dying. I was lapping a ninth place car at the time. I mean, that would have been our first DAV win. I remember getting DQs for the first time and not knowing why. Um, and, you know, different people we've raced with through the years that, you know, you've had words with that you regret. And, you know, thank God that relationships were repaired afterwards. But, you know, the heat of the moment stuff with, say, you know, me and the Pellins and me and the Vanassas. And you always regret that later. Um you know, cooler heads prevail, but in the heat of the moment, you say, you say stupid things or do stupid things. You know, driving through the pits one night, heading out for a heat race, I pull on my steering wheel, 
The steering wheel comes off of all cars in the pits. Who do I hit? Ryan Vanessa. In the middle of a championship season, when we're going at it, you couldn't have planned a worst case scenario than that if we would have scripted it. I was like, I just couldn't believe, first of all, that I didn't lock the steering wheel. Second of all, out of the 40 cars in the pits, I hit his. So, you want to talk about feeling like an idiot? Yeah, chalk one up for Jerry D. <laughs> now, you've also gone into doing some spotting over the years, too. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I remember you helping Chuck Hosfeld to a win of the NASCAR Wheeler Modified Tour. I did. I um, I spotted for a bunch of people. I spotted for, you know, a bunch for Bergman. We won two championships at Thompson with Dave. I spotted for Chucky. Uh on the modified tour, that was pretty cool getting to see the whole modified schedule and go to all the different places with them. Um, Tommy Carvino, um, Rick Gentis for years and years and years at Thompson, uh, spotting for him. I spotted for Dave Darling on and off. I spotted for Ryan Vanass. Spotting's fun. You know, it's, I always thought drivers were better spotters because they get more perspective. Um, just like on Saturday night. Uh, Ernie LaRose spots for me, driver at Waterford and Thompson, and does an incredible job. The drivers, for some reason, give a little bit better feedback, I think. Now, I remember there was a time where you didn't have spotters. So when you first started, when they first allowed you guys to have spotters, how difficult was it for you to have somebody in your ear? Um, well, we had... At Seacock was the last place to go to spotters, but we had used them at Lee, um, Thompson, all the outlaw races. Um, we tried a couple different spotters. Um, I tried my father. That definitely didn't work. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was no good. Um, you need someone that needs to, you know, pan the whole field and not just concentrate on one car. And unfortunately, yeah. he was always trying to see what was going on with us, so that didn't work. And then... Oh, she spotted for me for a while, and she was great. But then Bryce came along, so that kind of put the squash on that. So we've had some different spotters, and I myself love it because with a good spotter, you don't need a mirror. Because I think mirrors are one of the worst things that they ever put in race cars. If I remember correctly, when you first started racing, they didn't even allow mirrors. Beautiful. Take them out. You got a spot, you shouldn't need a mirror. That's my what opinion. About take, if you, if what you got a good spot, them both out. What's that? What about taking them both out? You want to go back old school? That's all, the, the, the problem with that, though, is when we didn't have spotters and mirrors, we could move around in the car more to look to see. Yeah. But with containment seats and the Hans devices, you can't really twist your head around much to see anything. So you used to be able to move your head a little bit just to see who was on either, see if someone was poking on either side of you. But with the big containment seats and the headrests, you can't see anything. So I kind of don't agree with that. I'll take that for an answer. I'll, I'll stick with the spotter on that, um, especially for safety factor where you're not going to see anything out the right side at all. So if you want to move up and somebody's on your right side, next thing you know, you're both in a fence. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's a bad scenario. Yes, it is. We've seen that too many times over the years with different oh, drivers making exactly. that mistake. I've been there, done that myself. So, 
you know, it becomes an expensive mistake and it, you know, for you and the other guy that got wrecked or vice versa. How much longer do you think you got left on this? Do you think you can pull a Billy Clark and race into your eighties or no, you know, you're, I, I definitely don't. You're in that mid-century mark there. Yeah, I know. 50 now. But, um, you know, we're still having fun. We're still competitive. If we're not competitive and we're not having fun, then I will be the first one to pull the plug on it. But, you know, we still got a ton of great friends. We look forward to going racing with people every week. The crew looks forward to it. My family looks forward to it. You know, this year was, you know, just a a situation, a circumstance that no one had control over or, you know, or seeing. But, you know, I see it going on for a little while longer. And then, you know, my daughter plays softball and, you know, she's in high school softball now, so I want to watch her more and stuff like that. So you never know what's going to happen. Doug, you're sitting there all quiet and stuff. You got anything? Well, I guess, you know, this the whole pandemic obviously threw a wrench into what was supposed to be a great season at Seekonk Speedway celebrating 75 years. Um, but going forward, you know, obviously nobody knows how to rebound from this, and you touched on it a little bit, but, you know, what are your thoughts going into this year? Should we have racing? Should we not have racing? Are you more motivated for next year? What, you know, what are your even thoughts during all this? Because this is obviously something unprecedented to any of us. It is, you know, and Doug, you're 100% right that no one just knows where we're at or where we're going to be at. Um, I want to go racing. Don't get me wrong. But I also don't want to do it at the risk of people getting sick or us rushing a gun. And the reason I say that is uh, my parents are in the 70s, so they're in the prime age group for this virus. So that's the last thing I want is for like them to get sick. So if we need to hold off for you know everybody to stay healthy, then that's what we need to do. If we can go racing later in the year when everything's safe and everybody's healthy, let's have at it. But if we need to take a step back and God willing, we don't race this year, well, then everybody's got their stuff ready for next year. But I think first and foremost is we need everybody to be healthy. And then everybody needs to look at it in which most people are not doing is they need to look at it from the track's point of view where the track also needs to make sure we're going to go racing where it's not going to sink them financially. I mean, yeah, everybody wants to go, but you need to make sure it's financially safe and smart for everyone so that we don't rush to do it. And then the track loses out because the track is where it's at. We need the track to be there in the future, not just right now. Do you think they could get away with doing it without fans? I don't know. I mean, we're going to find out tomorrow. Uh, well, when this cast is, what's tomorrow? Tomorrow would be the, what, the full, what's tomorrow, like 17? 17th, yeah. Yeah. All right, so the first NASCAR race will be tomorrow with no fans. Um, it would definitely be weird. I'm not going to lie. I'm not really all about that because the place was built on fans. I've been there for 25 years. There's been people going there a lot longer than I've been there. So mm -hmm. I've been racing for 25. I've been going for 40. 
And I see people that I watched as a kid that are still there. So why shouldn't they have the right to be there? And, you know, then if you listen to the governor, you know, of Massachusetts, Charlie Baker, he says by August, he'd like to see groups of 100 be allowed. Well, what's a group of 100? That's really not much. You can't even do one division a night in the pits alone for 100. So I don't know how they're going to figure it out. I mean, say August or September that everything clears up and the track wants to go back racing and we do, you know, some races at the end of the year for non-points. That's not a bad deal, but I still revert back to my initial comments about it needs to be healthy and safe for everybody. And we need to look at it from the track's point of view that they can't do it and lose money because everybody keeps saying, we need to race, we need to race, but no one's really concerned about the track's end of it. And that's, you know, listen, we only got one racetrack in Massachusetts. And we have none in Rhode Island, so we really can't afford to lose Seacock Speedway. So if it's going to take a year for them to figure out a plan for it to work financially for everybody, especially them, then that's what we need to do. We're still going to have our race cars. They're not going to go bad over the winter. In essence, it's just going to save everybody a bunch of money. Yes, we all want to race. We all miss seeing our family and friends and fans and, you know, seeing all you guys at the track and BS on everybody. But you got to look at the big picture of it, too. And and I, I guess I tend to look at it more that way because I'm a business owner and I see how it's hurting everything financially. But to me, that's the number one priority. Now, speaking of the financially part, do you think it will be tougher for the competitors to find sponsors after all this is over because a lot of a lot of small businesses are going to be hurting from all this absolutely it's going to affect it i mean a lot of businesses sponsor people because they know them or they like them or they know a family member that's where 90 percent of your sponsors come from so if you got a little business and he's just throwing you a few bucks here and there or buying you a tire here or two tires there because you're his buddy or your crew guy's his friend. The chances of that happening this year after him, you know, being either limited for whatever he does or even worst case scenario being shut down, that's not going to happen. Helping you at Seacock Speedway is not going to be his priority. His priority is going to be getting the business open, taking care of his own family and taking care of his employees. So Seacock Speedway and, say, Jerry DeGasparri aren't his number one priority right now, unfortunately. So I think it's going to hurt, especially people that have a bunch of little sponsors on their car. And over the past, over the years, you've had, you've had some good support from your sponsors that some of them have been with you for a long time. I've had Spumoni's Restaurant in Pawtucket with me since my first year, 1993. I mean, these been with me that long and thank god i appreciate it and more than everybody knows and we we are very lucky we've always had great people advertising with us i mean we've had some with us you know they what almost 30 years and we've had others for five and ten and we're very fortunate but right now it's going to be tough to go out and find that new person to come into the sport 
with this pan, you know, with this pandemic going on and the current state that we're in until everything is uh back to normal. And I mean the old normal, not what they're considering a new normal. <laughs> so it's, I think it's going to be a challenge for the racing, the racers end of it. With a lot of people jumping onto the iRacing during all this, have you thought about uh, doing some of that yourself? I got it all. I've had it. I've had my pedals and all my stuff. I've had all that. And I should just have Trent Goodrow, because the kid does an awesome job, design me a car. I just haven't got to it yet. Um, you know, Brendan races on it. And I see him doing it. And Bobby Langtang's racing on it. And seems like they're all doing it. But, you know, I watch it. Um, I reach out to Ryan Kuhn just about every time after he spanks the field on whatever your race is in. Um, and it's pretty cool to watch, whether it's on local guys or the NASCAR stars. And it's just cool to see, you know, some of the names and what they're doing. Well, that's all I got, Doug. What do you got? Yeah, no, Anything was, else? Yeah, I thought that was a great talk, Jerry. We really appreciate you joining us for our 75 Years of Speed podcast. Any final uh, thoughts or comments from you? Yeah, I want to thank you guys for having me on. I've seen the uh, the people that have been on the show already, and you guys have had some really great people on and some really great conversations. Um, just keep it up. It's pretty cool to listen to what everybody's got to say and what everybody's got going on. And, you know, before I get off, I just want to thank all my sponsors and, you know, obviously my father for all his support my wife and my daughter and my guys and most importantly i want to thank everybody for listening in and allowing us to do this oh yes thank you once again and we appreciate you joining us and everyone at home thank you for the positive feedback and thank you for tuning in to all the podcasts we've recorded and uploaded for your entertainment uh so far and we'll have plenty more to come throughout the season and hopefully soon enough we'll get back to racing but for kevin boucher and jerry degasperi i'm doug sheehan thank you all for joining us for the 75 years of speed podcast at seekonk speedway <laughs>